Welcome, everyone. It's good to be with you this evening. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been in a series called It All Adds Up. And we've been talking about finances. And it's my job tonight to wrap up that series. And so I want to do that by speaking about the secret to financial security. But some of you sitting here might, might be asking the question, well, who are you, Brad, to, to really tell us about financial security because you know I'm 33 and haven't really learned a lot about investing yet. Uh, what do I really know or have to say on this topic? That's a fair question, right? There's financial advice everywhere. There's a collection of books that you can find, articles that you can look at. John, if you could put that up for us, right? The internet is full of advice on how to get rich quickly. Some of that advice is good, some of it not so good. Right? And I'm sure for, for some of you guys, you're sitting at school at the moment. That's not really the question you're wrestling with right now. The question you're wrestling with is, what am I going to do when I finish school? What's the career path that, that I'm going to pursue? What am I, I going to have to study in order to do that? And the guys who are one step of you are asking, well, how am I, now that I've studied and, and qualified, how am I going to get a job? Because you know what? That's actually not as easy as you'd like to think it would be. Who's going to employ me? How much am I going to get paid? How much is a reasonable amount to get paid as a starting salary? And then the guys a couple of steps ahead of you, they're busy thinking, how am I going to buy a house? How am, I, how am I going to have kids? How am I going to afford to have children? How am I going to begin to put money away so that they can go to school and then they can go to varsity and continue the cycle that I've been on? And once you've done that, then you're asking the question, well, how am I going to make sure I have enough money to retire on when I eventually stop working? See, all of us wrestle with this idea of financial security. It's the reality of the world that we live in today. But more than just that, more than that, we live in a world where our desires are nurtured and cultivated and shaped by an advertising industry that constantly is telling us that we need to get more than we already have at the moment. There's a movie that, that went out uh, about 10 years ago called The Joneses. I don't know if any of you saw it. But in this movie, a fake family moves into a suburb, and actually they're a marketing unit. There are four people, a husband, wife, son and daughter, and they move into a suburb, and they are the perfect family. And everything they have is the top of the range. And their goal in moving into the suburb is to make friends with people, to become popular, so that people will see them and want what they have. See, the advertising industry is very good at presuming to tell us what we need. Have you noticed that? And then graciously supplying it for us. And if you don't have a need, they'll create a marketing campaign that helps you to know that you do, in fact, need this thing that you didn't realize you didn't need before. And then you desperately need to now acquire the solution to the problem that they've created for you. You know, you can't just eat food. Right? You can't just go and eat a Borovos roll after the service tonight because you need to have the best food. You need to make sure that your food is organic and pesticide-free and sustainably grown and be aware of all the different places that the different oils that are a part of it have come from. You can't just play sport in your tackies. You need to have the best sports equipment. You need to go down to Sportsman's Warehouse. You need to make sure that your shoes are top of the line. Your tennis racket is going to get the ball over the net with power. You can't just have any old cell phone because you know what? Every year, we've got to produce a new cell phone that does everything that the last cell phone did and one other thing that you didn't really need in the first place, but it's cool, right? And it does this extra thing. It's got two extra gigs of memory. When we talk about entertainment, it's not enough to have a computer that runs some games or like a PS2 because, you know, but my mates are playing FIFA on a PS4 right now, and it's not compatible if I have a PS2 and they have a PS4. So we need to make sure that, that I've got the latest game, the latest 
FIFA edition. The advertising industry loves to do this about yourself as well. You know what? You're actually not good enough the way in which you are. That's what they'd like you to know. You, you need to use this makeup to look better so that people will like you more. You need to wear these clothes because if you wear these clothes, then you will be cool and in style and in fashion and have more friends and be a better person rather than those clothes. In fact, if you want to also be better, you need to go to this gym and follow this program and use this health diet in order to make you a better version of the you that you are at the moment. No matter where you might sit on the spectrum of wealth, from having very little to having way too much, there's always something more that you can acquire. There's always a better version of you that you can be, according to the advertising industry. There's always pressure to get from where you are to where you think you want to be. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, you need to know that where your treasure is, there your heart is as well. When Jesus said that, this is a statement of fact. It's not a description of what might happen. You know, if you begin to pursue this thing, he says, no, you can evaluate your heart by looking at the stuff that you have begun to acquire. Where is your stuff? Is it here on earth? Is it all around you? Or is it in heaven? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Almost 40 years ago, now, 39 years ago, 1980, a chap called Richard Foster wrote a book, and in that book, he made this observation. He said this, he said, our need for security, you can put this up, John, has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in our contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has lost touch with reality. We crave things that we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. We're made to feel ashamed when we wear clothes or drive cars until they are worn out. The mass media has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. And he makes a statement, and this stuck with me. It's time to awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves. This is something he wrote, as I said, 39 years ago, where he brings into stark contrast what I think is very difficult for us in an affluent culture to see, that there is a battle that we engage in with the spirit of the love of money. That's what he means by the mammon spirit. And we're going we're gonna to talk tonight, and we're going to get there, we're going to move to a place of talking about biblical Christian contentment, but I don't feel like we can go there until we understand the depth of the problem that we're wrestling with. Contentment is a solution to a problem that we have, and we need to see that. And so I want to take a bit of time this morning to, to speak a bit about the battle that's going on for your heart, and, and the things that Scripture has to say about it, because there is a battle that's going on. It's sometimes not a battle that we want to see because sometimes if we see it, then we have to deal with something in us and that can be uncomfortable and difficult and it might require us giving up something. Unfortunately for us, guys, the scriptures are not silent on the issue of money and wealth. In fact, it's one of the things they address most frequently. I'll give you just a taste of some of the things that are in the scripture around this. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus is addressing a crowd, and there's a, a man in the crowd, and he says to Jesus, listen, Jesus, tell my brother to divide his, my share, the inheritance that we have. Tell me to give me my share of the inheritance. 
Jesus responds to him and he says, actually, you need to watch out. You need to be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Thousands of years ago, King Solomon writes this, this piece of wisdom from his accumulated life experience. As a king who had acquired more wealth than he knew what to do with, he wrote this and he said, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. The writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 13 verse 5, he says this, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. How's this from Revelation chapter 3? Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. And he starts off and he quotes them and he says, you have said I am rich, I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But I say to you, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's intense. They thought they were great. They couldn't even see how bad they were. What about the parable of the sower? You remember the parable of the sower, Matthew 13? Jesus says, there's a guy who goes along and he scatters some seeds, and there's, everyone's confused, and so his disciples ask him what he's talking about, and he's explaining the parable to them. He says this, verse 22, he says, The seed that falls among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word of God, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. It's a warning for us. Jesus is telling us that to acquire wealth, to accumulate money, is a deceitful thing. Money is deceitful. It, it leads us away and it dampens the power of God's word in our lives because we don't want to hear it anymore. Paul writes to Timothy in a letter where he conveys to him wisdom for, for leading a church and, and dealing with the, the lives of people. And he says this, he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 from 9 to 10, he says, Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And some people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Scripture is very clear. And perhaps there is no clearer picture in Scripture than when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says to his disciples and those who are listening, and he says to them this, he says in chapter, Matthew chapter 6, no one can be the slave of two masters. Because he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You remember who the two masters were? God and money. God and money. Friends, in each and every one of us, there is a battle for the devotion of your heart. For who you will give your heart to. And Jesus is on the one side saying, come, follow me. And on the other side, our enemy, the devil, is there. And he uses the power of the love of money and the power of greed and it calls us and he seeks to grab and to hold and to have our hearts. And there's a question that we need to wrestle with this evening as we're here tonight. Am I serving the right master in all areas of my, in all areas of my life? Particularly, am I serving the right master with respect to how I use my money? 
I believe that spiritual battle is the reason we, we live in financial anxiety. Yes, there are practical things like how much you earn, how much you spend, how much you save, where you spend and where you save. Those are important practical concerns that are a part of this. But at the heart of all of these things is the question of who does our money serve? Who does our money serve? Because it's the battle for the devotion of our hearts that leads to a financial insecurity. I'll unpack that for us in a moment. And I want to suggest to you this evening that the route to real financial security doesn't lie in the right investment strategy. It lies in what Paul calls learning to be content. Christian contentment is the heart of my message this evening. It's what I want to speak about this morning. I think it's the answer to the, the very real challenge of financial insecurity that we wrestle with. But we need to first see the problem before we speak about the solution. So that's why I've taken the time I have to get to this point, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more as we go. But we're going to begin now, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, where Paul is writing to the Philippian church. <clears throat> he speaks about this contentment that he's discovered. And he starts in verse 10, and he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I am in need, because I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I'm in. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. In fact, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. It's our section of Scripture for this evening, and just to tell you a bit about what's going on here, this is, this is kind of the climax of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Paul's relationship with the Philippians, you might remember from what John shared last week, the Philippian church was part of the Macedonian churches, and they had been in partnership with Paul from the beginning of his ministry. Even out of their poverty, they had been a financial blessing to Paul. They had been giving him financial gifts to sustain him in the ministry that he was in, and he had been a spiritual father to them. And so they had this relationship between the two of them that were, they were mutually supporting of one another. And this, this letter that Paul writes to them is primarily designed to say thank you to them for the way in which they've partnered with him in the gospel. And at the moment that he's writing the letter, Paul is in prison in Rome, actually. And he's just received a visit from a chap called Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus has brought with him a financial gift from the Philippian church which is why Paul says at the beginning, he says, I'm so glad that you've renewed your concern for me. This is what he was speaking about. They had been supporting him financially, and then there's been a time where they'd been unable to do that because you'll remember in 2,000 years ago, you couldn't just do an EFT from your cell phone, right? But someone actually, actually had to travel by ship to get to Rome to be able to help Paul out. And so he wants to thank them that they've been able to get there and to help him out again. But then he gets to the heart of what we're going to look at tonight. And, he's, and he begins with this statement, he says, and, and I'm not saying I'm thankful that you've given me this gift because I'm in need. And you're like, but, but Paul, I mean, let's just pause for a moment. You're, you're in a jail cell, right? You can't go to the market to buy, I mean, he's probably in, under house arrest in, in Rome, but he still can't go to the market. He can't, he can't make tents like he would normally make tents. He can't participate in business. It, on the face of it, he would kind of seem to be in need, but Paul says, I've, I'm not in need. Why? Because I have learned to be content whatever circumstance I'm in. I've learned this thing that called contentment, 
In fact, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Now, you must know when Paul says that, he, he really means it. He says, I've, I've actually lived without food. I've lived where there has been nothing to eat in my house for several days. I've, in fact, I've lived where I haven't even had a house to sleep in, and I've been out on the road or at sea or adrift and cast away. I've lived homeless and on the streets. I know what it is to have nothing. But I also know what it has, is to live in abundance. I know what it is to have more food than I could possibly eat, more rooms than I could possibly sleep in, more clothes than I could possibly wear. I know what it is to be in both of those places, and yet in I have managed to learn something. The secret he speaks about that transcends all of those spaces. I've learned to be content, whether I'm here or there or somewhere in between. I've learned the secret of being content. And I want us to, to live in the contentment that Paul speaks about. I think that's what God would have for us. And so we're going to unpack a little bit of what that contentment is all about and how we go about moving into that in our lives. But this idea of contentment, this is not a new idea, nor is it just an old idea that got stuck in the past. This is actually an idea that, that kind of carries through human history, right? It started um, with the Stoic philosophers in ancient Greece. They were very excited about learning to be content, and they would distance themselves from anyone and everything and kind of isolate themselves from earthly things and just be content in their own little space. But today, you can find contentment in the New Age movement, in Buddhism, there are blogs for days that you can read on how to be more content in your life. And contemporary contentment, this, this idea that still exists in our culture today, is kind of focused around these five things. Now, contemporary contentment is about, it's about developing an inward focus. It's about looking into yourself and seeing yourself as an inherently a good person, that there's, that there's something to be rejoiced in simply in being who you are. And isolating yourself from others, not about comparing yourself to others, but about being happy with who you are. It's about increasing the gratitude in your life, learning to be thankful for the small things, learning to be thankful for each day that you get to live, for whatever you have to eat, for the friends that you have or the family that you have. It's about learning to be grateful for the small things. It's also about decreasing the desires that you have for other things, right? Because if you lower your standards for happiness, then you will reach those standards and you'll be more content because you've now decreased your standards and reached them. It'll, it's also about decreasing the negativity that we tend to carry in our lives. If we're less negative about things, if we feel less like a victim about something, we're more likely to, to feel more satisfied and happy in the way in which we live. And finally, it's about an aesthetic minimalism. In other words, decreasing the amount of stuff that's in our lives, physical stuff, things that we, the advertisers want us to buy, and emotional stuff, the clutter that takes up the energy that we have in our lives. This is kind of contemporary contentment that the world would, would advise people to go into. And, and you know what? There's some benefit in these things. If you did these things in your life, you would probably find that your level of satisfaction in life would increase. But there is a significant difference between contemporary contentment and godly contentment, Christian contentment. Right, that's not, this is not what Paul is speaking about. Paul is speaking about something that's actually fundamentally different. When we look at Christian contentment, Christian contentment is not about being inward focused, but it's about being God focused. Right? It's about understanding your place in God's cosmic design. It's about simultaneously coming to grips with the idea that, that God is both infant, incredibly huge, 
right? and, and yet we are infinitesimally small and yet absolutely a part of what God is doing. Those two things are both true at the same time. That God is both far beyond us and outside of us, and yet he is also intimately near. That he is beyond our comprehension, and yet he speaks to us and reveals himself truly to us, and we can know him. It's about knowing that God is almighty creator and also loving father. As we begin to have the right picture of who God is and who we are in relationship to him, we begin to have a perspective that enables us to walk towards contentment the first part of Christian contentment that we're God-focused. The second part is there's an, is, and similar to contemporary contentment, it's an increase in gratitude, but it's a gratitude that is directed towards God because of what God has done in our lives. Just prior to what we read in verse 10, Paul writes in verse 4, and he says, rejoice always. In fact, I tell you again, rejoice. Verse 6, he says, when you pray, always pray with thanksgiving in your heart. Remember what God has done. Remember the goodness of God. Remember how he's been at work in your life and be grateful for it. You can read through the Old Testament and you will constantly find God addressing his people in this way. He says, I am the God that brought you up out of Egypt. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who led you through the wilderness. Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember the goodness which I have directed towards you. And be grateful. Be grateful for how I'm at work in your life. See, we're called to this because too often as people, we have a tendency to dwell on and to focus on the negative. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You go to someone, you're like, hey, how's, how's it going? How's your week? And you're like, oh, you know, it's been okay, but, and there's been this thing, and there's been that thing, and there's been this thing. And often it's easy for us to get stuck in the things that are difficult and hard in our lives, and I'm not saying they don't happen or that they aren't real. But God's call to us is that we don't get stuck there, but that we take them to the Lord and we do that in gratefulness and thankfulness for who he is and what he's done in our lives. We need to remember who our God is. Thirdly, I believe Christian contentment is about a spiritual redirection. Because it's God-focused and not me-focused, there are two key movements that I think need to take place in our heart for us to move and live in contentment. And the first is this. We need to move from a, a worldview that's all about me, that's centered and focused on me and who I am, to a worldview that is about the kingdom of God. And this is a really significant thing. And I think this is so summed up so well by Paul in this letter to the Philippians in chapter one. You'll remember Paul is writing there, and remember he's in jail at the time, he's in jail awaiting judgment by Caesar, who's gonna judge Paul himself, and his life is in Caesar's hands. And as he's contemplating his life and where it has been, what he's done and where it's gonna go and how it might come to an end, he make, makes this statement and he writes it down to the Philippians. He says, guys, I have learned that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In other words, my life is no longer lived for myself. My life is lived because I, I live for the redeeming work of Christ the Messiah. He has called me out of the kingdom of darkness, brought me into the kingdom of light. He has repurposed me and my life now exists for his kingdom. That's why I'm here. And as he's wrestling with this, he says, you know what, if it was actually, if it was up to me, if I got to decide what was best for my life, I'd rather die. I'd actually rather die because I'd go to be with Jesus and that would be better by far. But I recognize that there is still more that God has for me to do in your life. There's still more for the kingdom of God that God would do through me. And so it is better that I remain. See, Paul had learned 
that living the Christian life is not about serving me, but it's about serving the king. That's the first redirection that needs to happen in our lives. The second is, is similar and like it, right? Because all of us, we start in this place before you knew Jesus. You start in a place where you are under the authority of the spirit of this world. Right? In that place, we are very selfishly focused. But we're also very focused on achieving worldly success and financial gain and finding happiness. These are all the things that are embodied under the spirit of the world. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve the God of, of money and of pleasure and of success and Jesus. That doesn't work. There needs to be a reorientating of our lives. And this happens as the Spirit is at work in us, as we are conformed into the image of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out, as we invite Him into our hearts and lives. And we say, Lord Jesus, show me what, what is missing in my life. Show me the places where I'm falling short. Make me more like you. And we invite God into that space. And He begins to reorientate us from being about worldly success and finding worldly happiness to being about obedience to Christ and the kingdom and what God is doing in the kingdom. There's a spiritual redirection that happens for us to experience true godly contentment. And finally, I think Christian contentment is grounded in the faithfulness of God. That's why Paul writes in verse 13, he says, I can do all of these things. I can be content in each and every situation because of Christ who gives me strength. By the way, just a small aside, I hope you can notice this verse, which we so often love to take out of context, is about being empowered to be content, whether we have nothing or we have everything. It doesn't mean I can somehow do anything because Jesus is with me. It doesn't mean you can just decide to fly a plane one day because you have Jesus. It's not what he's trying to say. Right? It's Christ who enables us, whether we are in want or in plenty, to be content, to be happy, no matter what might be happening around us. It's because God is faithful that we can genuinely place our trust in Him. And I think there's something, there's something that we need to catch here. There's something that I, that I feel like needs to be said in this space. Because we read earlier that Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, whether I have nothing or whether I have abundance. And there's something that, that's quite significant there. Often in our minds, our contentment in a situation is tied to the provision of God for that particular situation. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Let's say you had to lose your job and you went to work tomorrow. Maybe that means you can't afford certain things anymore, like the repayments on your house that you have, or the varsity fees that you're paying, or the repayments on your car, or your DSTV subscription, whatever it might be. See, often for us, we decide that our contentment, we, our, we will be content when God, you know, in His provision, makes up the difference, makes up the thing that we've lost. But something that I think we need to recognize from what Paul is saying and from the life that he lived is there are times where God didn't make up the difference, where there was no food to eat, there was literally nothing, where there was no place to sleep, where there were no clothes to wear, where there was no shower to get clean. In fact, he's writing this very letter from a place of being under house arrest and in prison, where he has almost no rights. There may be times in our lives where the stuff of our life is pruned away by God, and the going gets tough, and things get difficult. 
want to ask, will you still be content in that place? Will you remember that your life is not your own, but that you've been bought with a price, and that you don't live to serve yourself, but you live to serve Jesus and to extend his kingdom? Genuine Christian contentment enables us to be in a place like that and to be content. I love these words that Paul wrote to Timothy in his final letter, the final letter that he writes. His life is, is coming towards an end. He knows that, that things are, are not going to go on for too much longer, and he records these words in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, and he says, Timothy, you need to know that I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He says, Timothy, I know I have lived my life for God. And I know that I have stored up for myself treasures in heaven. And the day is going to come where I'm going to go to be with the Lord. And I know that he's guarded that which I've entrusted to him. Friends, when we truly allow ourselves to become God-focused, to remember God's goodness towards us, to be directed away from ourselves and the love of money towards Jesus and his kingdom, when we fully trust in the faithfulness of God, then we are able to walk in the contentment of knowing that our lives are entrusted to God for his use and for his glory. That's the contentment that we get to walk in as God's children. And so I want to close by, by offering us the opportunity to move towards that contentment. And I want to do that by walking through a process that some of you are reasonably familiar with. It's called the five R's. It's something that we do in our um, Living Free course, a great course for you to do if you haven't done it yet. But I don't want to do this corporately for us. I want to walk you through it because I think this thing is so big. The permeation of the culture around us and the love of money around us is so deep that I want to really encourage you to take this home and to sit with God and invite him into your heart as we do this. And to say, God, come and search me. Come and expose my heart. And if there are places, Lord, which you need to redirect, please come and redirect me. First R stands for recognize. The thing is, if we're going to live in contentment, we need to recognize that we have a problem of not yet being content. Because there are probably spaces in our lives which we haven't yet submitted to Jesus, places where sin still reigns. I'm going to offer you a couple of thoughts just to think through um, that have been adapted from guidelines made by Richard Foster. Right? And, and if you find any of these, these thoughts, if, they, if these questions begin to, to land a little bit hard or, or they, they kind of touch a bit of a nerve, I want to ask you to use those questions to invite God into that space and just say, God, is there something there that I'm not seeing? Right? And there's plenty of other things that you can use for this as well, but we'll start with these six. When you buy things, do you buy them because they're useful or because they have status attached to them? Do you ever buy things or embrace things that form addictive habits in you? Are you easily able to give things away when you get an opportunity? Or do you find that quite difficult to do? Do you constantly need to have new things even if your old thing still works? Are you able to enjoy things that you don't own? Or do you try and own everything that you want to use? How quickly do you use credit? 
by which I mean money you don't yet have? Is it a last resort for you? Is it something that you reserve for special and emergency purposes? Or do you use credit maybe more quickly than you should? Those are just some thoughts, some questions to ponder. Uh, but my hope in doing this is that we would invite God to come and to search our heart and to show us if there's anything in us that's conformed to our culture rather than to Jesus. And if you see something there, as you're doing this with the Lord as you go home, please really do that. Casting Crown sing a song called The Altar and the Door. It's about how we Christians can get super spiritual in church at the altar, and then we walk out the door and we forget about it and we carry on living our lives. The second R is for repentance. It's, it's once we've recognized our sin, then there's a need to turn away from our sin and to realign ourselves, that's the third R, with the truth about God and what He has said. So as you do this, as you do this at home, if you recognize there's a repentance that is necessary, I want to just share three scriptures with you that speak the truth of God into this situation. We read 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 earlier. We're going to read 11 and 12 in addition now. It says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Some of you may remember this one from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of the things that you need will be added to you. Jesus has just spoken about, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your Father knows that you need all of these things. It's normal to worry about those things, but instead, Jesus says, rather seek first the kingdom. Trust that God will give you what you need. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the truth about God that, that he gives to us so that we are able to live in real contentment. The fourth R in the process is, is a, is, stands for rebuking. Because we engage in the battle for our hearts between Jesus and the spirit of the enemy, the spirit of the love of money, the spirit of greed. Once we have repented, where there are spaces we recognize we've been in sin, when we repent of that sin, we turn around, we decide to follow Jesus. We now carry authority in the spiritual realm to deal with the influence of the spirit of the enemy in that space. And so you have authority in Christ to bind the spirit of greed and the spirit of the love of money and to command them to be gone from your life and to cease in exercising influence over you. And then the final part of the process, the final R is to replace. Because we need to put in what is good and what is right. We need to feed ourselves with the truth. We need to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Jesus. So that when the temptation of the enemy and the world comes to once again turn towards the love of money and the pursuit of things, we need to be able to see that and recognize it and take it captive and make it obedient to Christ and know the truth that God has spoken, that he will give us all that we need. 
that we can be content with what we have, whether he's blessed us with much or whether we're in a season of having very little. I encourage you to do that at home, but, but there's also something else that, and I want to finish with this word, with this, with this one little phrase, this little axiom that I've actually developed for myself. It's been a helpful thing for me. Right? And the axiom is this, if God, then what? And that might sound a little weird to you, right? But as I was reading James, the book of James, James speaks about the person that reads the perfect law of God, the perfect description of God and who he is, and then doesn't live out what he's read. James says that person is like a man who looks in a mirror and sees his own reflection and then turns away and forgets what he just saw. And it's had no impact, no bearing on his life. And there is a concern in my heart that as a church in general, we have got very used to, I'm not saying just this church, but I think Christians in general, we have got very used to hearing the word of God, reading the word of God, and being like, sure, that was a good message. That was a really interesting moment. And it doesn't actually affect how we then live out our life in light of that. And so I've begun to do this thing where I read the scriptures or I listen to someone preach and I say, well, if God has said this, then what am I going to do about it? If God, then what? And so there's a statement that I try and form in my mind and I want to encourage you to do that tonight. Say, if God has done this, then what will I do? Think of something. Lord, because you have said this, I will do this. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to give us a few moments of silence to do that, like a minute, minute and a half, just to think about that. And then I'm going to begin to pray for us. And while I do that, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me on the stage. I'm going to move into a time of worship. And if there's ministry that you would like in this space while we're engaging into worship, we, we really are here. We want to be journeying this thing with you. This is something I think we all wrestle with. It's a battle that we all face as we engage this culture. And so we're going to be here. We're going to be available to do some ministry. We're also going to spend time and, and set our eyes on Jesus and focus on him. But let's take a moment now. God, if you have said this, what will we do? Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who will never leave us and never forsake us. We thank you, God, that your promise to us is that when we seek you first and your kingdom above all else, 
that you will give to us, Lord, all the things that we need. All the things that we desire. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for all the things you have already done in our lives. And that you will continue to be at work in us and through us. We bless you, God. And Lord, we pray that as we navigate this landscape of financial integrity, God, I pray that you help us to do that with contentment, that you help us to find true and deep contentment. Lord, I pray if there are places in our hearts that we can't yet see where, where the enemy has got a hold of our desires and he shaped the way in which we think, where we actually have begun to serve the spirit of money rather than you, Jesus. God, won't you come and just show that to us? Won't you reveal that to us, God, so we can turn from that and enter into the freedom that you have bought for us in Christ? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are no longer our own, that we have been bought with a price, that we now live for your kingdom and for your glory, that there is a home that awaits for us one day which is better for us by far, that we will be there with you, but that while we are here, we get to live for you, for your glory, and for your kingdom. We bless you, Jesus. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Just as the team begins to play, if you would like someone to pray with you,